Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the creative people that make it. Today, we got a great guest, the one and only Marka27, and I can't wait to get into this one. This dude is a special human, but before we get into it, I want to encourage you to check out all the good stuff we got for you on our website, notrealart.com. We just announced our grant winners for 2022. So go check them out. Six amazing artists who we're just so grateful to have now in our Not Real Art family. So go check them out. We've also got some incredible content there, other artist profiles, and some exciting information about our recent Smart Talks event. So get over there and check us out, notrealart.com. Now, if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so. And of course, always make comments and tell us what you think. And did I tell you that we have a hotline? You can call 833-668-7325. Again, 833-668-7325 and tell us what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. Leave us questions, critique us. We always love your feedback and to hear from you. So please be sure to use our hotline, 833-668-7325. All right. Without further ado, I got to tell you about our guest today, Marka27. This guy is an international street artist who works at the intersection of contemporary art, graffiti, vinyl toys, fashion, and design with paintings, murals, drawings, mixed media pieces, and private commissions for major brands. His robust palette blends elements of street and pop culture with Mexican and indigenous aesthetics. The signature look the artist has coined as neo-indigenous. Marco 27's work has been part of graffiti and street art culture, but he has flourished as a product designer, gallery artist, toy designer, and more. Marco 27 has emerged as one of the most sought-after muralists in the world, mastering his craft since before street art was even a term. Remember that, guys? Street art's a new thing. <laughs> he lives and works in Brooklyn, New York, where he and his wife and creative partner, Liza, run their award-winning creative agency, Street Theory Gallery. 
And I just love Mark. I mean, you know, the phrase still waters run deep. I mean, couldn't be more applicable to a human being. I've known Mark. I've had the privilege and honor of knowing this amazing human since I think 2004. We met through our mutual friend, Man One. And shout out, Man One. And so Mark and I have worked together on projects over the years off and on. And I'm just so grateful that he took time out of his busy schedule to come and chop it up with us today. We get into some interesting stuff. I think you're going to dig it. But like I said, Mark is just a deeply soulful dude and very thoughtful in his speech and his words. Unlike me, I just spout off (laughs) without thinking half the time. But Mark is the antithesis of me. He, in the best way, he is such a thoughtful, soulful dude, smart dude. And I'm just so grateful to have him on in his classing up the joint with his creative brilliance and his talent. So without further ado, let's get into this important episode and hear from the one and only Marka 27. Marka 27, welcome to Not Real Art. Peace, peace. Pleasure to be here. Oh, man. So grateful to have you here, brother. How long have we been talking about this? <laughs> Too long. <laughs> By the way, in all honesty, I started getting a little bit of a complex. I'm like, does Mark not like me anymore? Is there something? <laughs> is something I say something? I do something? <laughs> no. You know what's, what's funny is I wonder how many artists that you speak to have kids and a family and all this other shit that they're juggling. Well, by the way, like, it's funny because that's exactly what it is, right? Because, I mean, you and I both have kids and we're both mm-hmm. going crazy. And, but, you know, more to the point, you know, I was half joking, if not more, but the point is that you're just a busy dude, no matter what. I mean, take the kids out. Just even if you didn't have kids, you'd be hard to lock down between your full-time gig and your art practice. I mean, you're a busy dude. Yeah, no, we've been, we've been blessed, man. The full-time gig, though, I left the corporate world, I want to say about five years ago. So just being an artist and working on our creative agency, Street Theory, that's what we've been focusing on for the past five years. Wow. Well, then that, then you and I have not talked in far too long because I think I uh, probably heard that, but I'd forgotten it, right? Because you were at Converse for how long? Almost five years. Okay. Yeah. And now you've been gone for five years. It's crazy how time flies, but yeah. Wow, man. Well, you know, we yeah. did have a little thing called a global pandemic in there too, so... <laughs> Yeah, I don't mean to laugh. It was a shit show. All conversations have been like pre-COVID or post-COVID. That's how conversations used to, you know, they start like that now. Well, but here's the deal, right? I mean, you're sort of like living the dream for so many artists because how many artists out there, right? They've got the the full-time gig, you know, to help pay the bills. And, you know, the art is like a part-time hustle, but a passion they want to make full-time. Mm-hmm. And you were able to make that flip, right? You flipped the switch and and that's a blessing and a gift, man. It is, but I have an incredible partner by my side, Liza Quinones. You know, she's uh, a big part of the reason that we've been able to make that shift. But also uh, being in that corporate world for so many years and working under that environment has given me an advantage into being an artist and, you know, working with clients, working with brands kind of understanding what the needs are and, you know, what it is to be an artist and trying not to, you know, separate those two worlds, but really try to take the best of both of them. 
So what are, I'm going to put you on the spot. I mean, three things that come to mind, three big lessons that you think you learned working on, a you know, working for corporate America, so to speak, for a mm-hmm. brand like Converse that you wouldn't have learned otherwise. Honestly, I would say when working on projects, really understanding what somebody needs versus what you want to do and how to communicate to them. If they're hiring you for what you do, then they can't always expect what they need. But you have to be able to articulate what the difference is. Because if a brand wants to hire you to do a commercial project, then you need to decide whether or not you're going to do commercial work. But if a brand wants to hire you because of your work, because of your art, and because of what you represent, then you need to guide them in a way where they don't make it look commercial. Right. So then where's the balance now for you in terms of ratio? Like, are you at a point now where you're saying, no, 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 no more like corporate commercial commission kind of gigs. I'm just going to do market 27 or, or is it like, you know, if the brand wants me to bring market 27, I'll do that gig because they want market 27. But Mm -hmm. if they want me to like design to a brief and they don't really care about market 27, I'm not going to do that gig. Right. I mean, does it, you know, what, how do you filter those opportunities now? Are you only doing market 27 stuff or are you still a gun for hire? I guess. It's funny. A gun for hire. I love that. (laughs) No, you know, it's, I have have no problem with anybody that does commercial work that does good work, you know, because at the end of the day, you're still a talented artist. You still have a skill set that many people want. And sometimes they may not be able to put your name on it or to call it an official collaboration. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not always the case, right? So sometimes as an artist, you have to take that out, do incredible work, and the design team gets the credit. But that's when you're working for a corporation full-time. The best thing about making the shift is I get to choose, right? And for the most part, I've mostly been choosing projects that align with the kind of work that I do. And I'm able to express the work that I am and, and not have to hide behind you know, any corporation or any other brand. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's interesting because I mean, it's like, I think sometimes I mean, every artist is different. Every person is different. God bless that, you know, mm-hmm. that diversity, but it's like, you know, I think there are a lot of artists out there that feel like, well, you know, yeah, I don't want to compromise, you know, my vision, my aesthetic, whatever, you know, for that commercial gig. But, you know, the reality is, you know, on a certain level, it takes a certain amount of chops to be able to do that. Like not, I mean, some people are just one trick pony. And I'm not, I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but it's like, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's like some people are just like, they just do what they do. Like they got one tool in a toolbox, you know, and like, that's what they do. And that's right. cool. You know, God bless them. But then, you know, to have a guy like you, I mean, you're multidisciplinary. I mean, you have multi tools mm-hmm. in your toolbox. So you get to choose. It's like, well, okay. You know, do I want to, you know, be hired so to use all my tools or just, do I just want to stick with these two or three, you know, and that's a blessing. I mean, it's sort of to have to have that toolbox, you know? No, definitely. And come from a design and product background helps tremendously. You know, I didn't come up with this, but somebody said that, you know, design is just art with a function. And I think that when you're doing something for marketing purpose or to celebrate a moment, for example, if, if it's a campaign for World Cup Mexico and somebody wants to hire you to represent you know, Mexico's team, 
you know, you'd be crazy not to do that. But of course, it has to be centered around soccer, the essence of World Cup is, and your work. You know, it can't just be all about your work. So you have to be creative and think outside the box and find an authentic way to make that connection. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was really interesting what you said. I mean, when I asked you about, like, what you learned working for Converse, you know, I mean, because at a high level, what you said was you really referenced communication. Like, how do you communicate, you know, and that ability to articulate, you know, and, and differentiating and then communicate around, you know, what is a want versus a need or, or just being able to understand what is needed for a given outcome. And, you know, I say this a lot, we, you know, we talk a lot about communication, you know, in the arts and, you know, the reality is, you know, sadly, I mean, there's so many artists that are so damn talented, but they can't talk about their work maybe, right. Or they just, they're uncomfortable maybe communicating. And I just feel like, you know, there's probably a lot of mediocre artists out there that are killing it because they really are good communicators, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, but I, I think that muscle, right. That ability, it's like with any good marriage, right? I mean, any good marriage of any kind, whether it's with you and your life partner or you and the client or whatever, like it hinges on your ability to communicate, to listen, right. To see. Yeah. And that's a powerful thing that you're talking about. Yeah. No, it's, it's incredibly important. But I mean, most important, it takes time and, you know, a lot of dedication to have a point of view that doesn't happen overnight. Right. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because I mean, you and I met, I first meet, I remember meeting you first time and tell me if I'm wrong, but I do believe you and I first met in Playa del Rey at the EA corporate headquarters when you and man were doing a, a live painting gig. That was, I had just met man about that time. So that had to be like, I don't know, 2004, 2003, something. And then he's like, oh yeah, my boy, Mark is coming through and you show up. I'm like, whoa, man, I just watching you guys do your thing. And, you know, and I think that's when we met, man, you know? And so, so we, you and I go back a little bit, but then, you know, I don't really know much about your true origin story. Like, you know, as an artist, like, did you get started, you know, were you a writer? Like, how did your creative expression come to life as a young kid? Well, for me, I mean, you know, my origin story starts with my family. Uh, I was born in Juarez, Mexico. We moved to Texas when I was really young. And, you know, seeing graffiti on freight trains and seeing some of the gang calligraphy. And then finally getting exposed to spray can art, subway art. It was a combination of all those things that really made me want to get into graffiti and start you know, using a spray can to try and do anything, really. Letters were the first thing that I started with. And graffiti was the thing that you know was my first love. It wasn't until I moved from Texas to the East Coast that I started painting with crews in New York, like Fly ID, and I had a crew in Boston called 3A, another crew called ALA. And then from New York, we ended up in L.A. And that's when I linked up with the infamous Man One and Vile and started painting with COI crew. And that led to painting at the Belmont Tunnels and, you know, just really connecting with some legends. Yeah, right on, brother. So how old were you when you moved to Texas? 
I must have been maybe three, four years old. Isn't that funny? We're like getting old enough now that like we have to actually yeah. think about like, <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, how old was I when I did that? <laughs> and I got you beat. I'm 52. But I'm just saying yeah. like, even like, I'm like, oh, man. Well, what was that? 80, 80, 81? I don't remember. So you were, I'm sorry, you were, you were how old you said? You think about three? I'd say about three, three to four years old before you could start elementary school. Because I remember when I started school, I didn't really know English. I was learning English by watching Saturday morning cartoons and Sesame Street. Because neither of my parents spoke any English. And what was that like for you? Do you remember what it was like? Or was it just as a young and kids are so resilient and, you know, we, you know, kids bob and weave in a way that adults can't. But like at the end of the day, like, do you remember, was that that exciting for you? Was that scary for you? A little bit of both? I mean, what was it like moving to Texas for you as a little kid? Well, I had two siblings. You know, I had an older brother and a twin brother. And at that time, living in East Dallas in the 80s was you know, problematic. There was a lot of crime. There was a lot of gang activity, drugs, all those things. And uh, I remember in elementary school, two houses down from my house, I actually saw a SWAT team come and raid a house. And I really didn't understand. I thought I were filming a movie. I didn't know that shit was real. You know, when you're a kid, it's hard to make that connection. Totally, right? Yeah, because you, you only see that shit on TV. You're like, whoa, they must be, they must be filming a show. But that's exactly all, all too real, all too real. So so you come to Texas. How long were you in, uh, in East Dallas? All through the 90s. I want to say I moved in 1999. To Boston or to New York? To Boston. To Boston, right, right, right. Yeah, to Boston. Went to college on a scholarship. Yeah, what's crazy is when I was in Dallas, I got arrested for graffiti. It was a crazy-ass charge. I was with a friend of mine, and he's a white kid from the suburbs. We both got arrested for the same shit. They put us in separate cars, and I didn't see him for a few months until I got out. When I got out, I said, hey, where the hell have you been? And he said, where the fuck have you been? And it turns out they gave him a ride home told his family he was hanging out with bad people, bad company. But, you know, they looked at me. I had no record at the time. And, you know, that shit didn't mean anything to them. That took me straight to jail. Oh, man, I never heard that story before. Yeah, there's many like that. But, you know, I'm probably one of the few people that have gone to college on a scholarship and were on probation at the same time. <laughs> well, I don't mean to laugh. I mean, you have to laugh. You got to oh, laugh. No, it's so crazy. It's me. crazy. Yeah, that some judge in Texas said, well, I see you're trying to turn your life around and you have a scholarship, but you're still on probation. So that's just wild to me. Well, and I mean, it's like when I said I didn't hear that story before, like I never heard that your story, ver- your version of that story. Mm-hmm. Had, that shit happens all the fucking time. We of don't course. even, everybody knows that shit. Anybody that's listening anyway knows that shit but i didn't know that it happened to you that's wild oh yeah i mean it's not until you become an adult and you have kids you start understanding the even the trauma that you went through as a kid and thinking about damn my mother had to see me you know chained like an animal in front of a judge and to think that you would never want to see your own kids like that that's when you start to realize you know what the system does to families yeah man yeah. Well, and you know, it's not to get like too like specific about it, but it's like, you know, like one of the things that I'm just so inspired by when I think of you is like not even 
just about your art. I mean, you have, while you have built out your art practice and your career as an artist, you have raised a family, man. I mean, you, your kids are just so beautiful and so special, you know, and I say that in part because I'm a late bloomer. I'm 52. I got two kids under 10 and every day I'm just like nervous and scared, you know, about like, like what, like what the future holds for them, what the world holds for them, you know, what kind of bullshit the world's going to throw at them. And, you know, and on a certain level, my friend, you know, you've managed to, to say, get through and get to the other side and look at your beautiful family. And I know you just must, your heart just must be swollen and, and filled with so much joy and pride and gratitude. Yeah, absolutely, man. If it wasn't for my faith and for my mother, her perseverance, her hard work, it was the same thing with my father when, when I was younger. I got to see a man that used to have to come to the country illegally, you know, send money back to Mexico until he could bring the rest of his family legally, give us the opportunities we could never have in Juarez, Mexico. And, you know, at some point my father became, he was a laborer, did a lot of day laborer work, worked his ass off until he was able to have his own business, his own body shop, and take care of his family. So I think a lot of that hard work and and work ethic has been instilled in me. Yeah, well, it's, it is. We do stand on the shoulders, right, of giants. And, well, we stand on the shoulders of our family. And hopefully our family, right, so many so many kids out there don't have what you had, you know. And, you know, how grateful and lucky. And it's like it is about the luck of the draw, too. It's like that's why we have to give back, right? That's why we have to remember that, you know, none of this shit is predestined. I mean, it is so random. You know, I mean, you could have easily and I could have easily been born into families that just didn't give a shit, you know, and it's like my two kids are adopted and it's like, you know, thank goodness their biological parents cared enough to like try to place them, you know, with a family that would, you know, that would love them and do right by them, you know. But I mean, in terms of like so many kids out there, I mean, your kids hit the jackpot. I mean, you know, it's like they take out you as a dad. Like, come on. It doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, man. You know. It's crazy because some things come full circle. Most recently, there's a fellowship called Ride of Return. And what that fellowship does is it gives grants to formerly incarcerated artists. And I was awarded a grant along with some other really talented artists. Some of these artists, you know, they've done 25 years in prison. So, you know, my case is nothing compared to some of these people and some of the hardships that they've been through. But to understand firsthand what it means to go through the system and to be able to still continue to create, still continue to express yourself and not let that define who you are. I think that's really what Rider Return is trying to really just empower artists that have been in that situation. Oh, big shout out to that organization. So how are you, how do you know them? How are you involved with them? Are you working with them like as an artist? Yeah, I'm, like- I'm currently working with them. I just received one of their grants and I'm also just a big fan of some of the artists that are involved with it. There's an artist named Jesse Crimes. There's an independent film called Crimes by Jesse Crimes. Really interesting. Just documents the work that he did while he was in prison. Just really inspiring. 
Well, brother, I just, just, I'm just going to say this right now while it's on my mind, but I mean, let's talk later. Cause I'd love to have these guys on the podcast, you know, like it'd be, no, absolutely. It'd be I'd awesome love to make that connection. Yeah. 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 No, that's for sure. For sure. Anytime, all the time, you know, like just, just know, and, and I'll follow up with you on that, but that those stories have to get out there, man. You know, like they, we, we, you know, we gotta, we gotta amplify that, you know, but well, I mean, look at you on the move. I mean, you are literally focused now full time on street theory. Like, and you know, like when we were texting the other day, you were saying, you know, like now's the time. Cause you and I, you know, as we said earlier, like we've been trying to do this for a while, you know, between your schedule and my schedule, it's like, <laughs> and the, and every life is just nuts. So here we are. But I mean, you were saying the other day, it's like, yeah, you know, I got a lot more to talk about now. Cause I mean, you've got, it's one thing, you know, when you're doing the corporate shit, you don't really want to talk about that and probably can't talk about that. Cause you know, it's just corporate shit, but you have been on fire and now you've got this, you know, full-time, you know, street theory practice that's going on. So, I mean, man, the, the floor is yours. The mic is yours. You tell me what we need to know. What should we be pumping right now and, and talking about? Cause you've been on fire. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of collaborations there's been some great projects that have been happening very recently. Most recently, I completed one of my largest murals. It was called Soledad. It's in the south end of Boston. It's 85 feet high, 50 feet wide. And, uh, you know, it was a, a tremendous project. It was like over a year in the making. And it was recently completed, let's say about three weeks ago. But this project, you know, it meant a lot because it was about preserving the culture and the heritage of a neighborhood that's gone through a ton of a gentrification. So, you know, just creating something that, you know, allows people and communities to tell their stories and to let people know what the history of that community has and always will be. That's what meant a lot. Well, and it's one thing to have a surface like that, you know, in terms of that that size of a surface. And then it's another thing to be able to fill that surface in some like artistically competent way. But then, you know, your work <laughs> on that surface as well, given the level of depth, detail, technical prowess, and just, you know, color palette. I mean, all the stuff, because your work is so incredibly rich and complex. I mean, no wonder it took this long <laughs> to get it done. I mean, how many hours on the wall do you think you had? Or how should I say how many days on the wall? It was roughly 16 days, which is pretty fast for most people, especially for something of that size. And, you know, a lot of the times people don't take into consideration. You're you're controlling a machine and painting at the same time. So it's, uh, you know, it's technical, but at the same time, you have to be safe, you know, just as you can't paint because the machine is just not safe with, you know, anything above like 30 miles per hour wind. So, yeah, it's it's crazy, man. But I'm looking forward to doing bigger and better things, literally and figuratively. <laughs> well, the, the, you know, it's interesting that you say that because, I mean, it's like on maybe a more, I don't know, less, I don't want to say this, like somebody that maybe doesn't know any better might have thought, as I was kind of implying, it's like, oh, that's a big wall. It must took you a long time. Well, actually, no, not when you actually have the years of experience and skill that you have, because part of the part of the proof of the pudding is that, no, no, I knocked that shit out in 16 days. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, it didn't take me 16 weeks, it took me 16 yeah. days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I always say, you know, it processes everything, right? And you could be super talented, but if but if you're a hot mess, it's just going to take you forever. You know, I know a lot of artists that 
they're, they're incredibly talented, dope studio artists. You give them a huge space like that, and you just you just see them fall apart. Because a lot of the times, you know, they approach it the way they would approach a piece in a studio versus, you know, what it's going to actually take to produce something at that scale. So, yeah, this is a whole different world. It's another beast. Well, so let's drill down on that because process is everything. And your process is obviously your process that has been honed over years and years of practice, trial and error, you know, all that good stuff. I mean, so break it down for us. Take us through your process on a big wall like that. How did it all begin? Take us through from end to end. I mean, this particular wall, it was raw brick. And the way the mural was designed was to leave a lot of that raw brick exposed. So it was more about, you know, using the right primer, only priming the areas that you're going to actually paint artwork on. So it looks like the artwork is just part of the building and, you know, not just the whole surface covered. On top of that, artwork ended up looking like a giant coloring book. You know, it was just all white primer, black outline for the sketch, you know, absolutely no depth, no rendering, just a rough sketch. And then, you know, from there, it's just having uh, printed out references, you know, really large scale details on each print. So, you know, and you don't get lost when you're up on the wall. But really, like you said, you, you hit the nail on the head, Scott. It's, it's the 30 years of experience that really gets you through that project. Because when you're in a wall that large and you're up that close, it's really easy to get lost. Well, and yeah, so that idea of being up so close. I mean, I've wondered about that. It's like, how do you, because I've seen, you know, guys up on the wall painting, they're painting a, a big mural or whatever, and they're, but they're up so close. Like, how the hell do you keep that perspective and how can you, you know, break it down? I, guess, I don't know. Are you using a grid system that helps you understand like where you're at in space on the mural? Like, how do you keep that perspective when you're up so close? It's kind of like putting a puzzle together. You know, if you have a large sketch on the wall, the second you start filling everything in, you start losing your sketch. You start using your outlines. So then you're just on a wall with a bunch of colors. If you have your reference up there and you know the area that you're painting on, and you also have a mock-up of your drawing, your sketch, your fully rendered drawing onto the actual wall, then you're comparing what you're painting to the reference that you have. And, you know, that's where technique and experience really takes over. You know, because there's artists that use doodle grids, which work great. There's other artists that project, which also works great. Honestly, there's no right or wrong way. I, I don't believe in being a purist and, you know, there's only one way to do things or there's only a true way to do things. I really think that if you get your message across and if your work is strong, and your originality is really what sets you apart from everybody else. At the end of the day, nobody cares how it got done. They just care about the end result. Well, and absolutely, right? And, you know, but as a practical matter, right, we all know that when you're talking about a wall that big, for example, like, I mean, you know, people might think like, oh, being an artist is so glamorous, so sexy, and, you know, and it is cool, and it's a gift from God, and, you know, and that's to be honored and respected, no doubt. Not everybody has it. But that being said, though, you know, doing a wall like that, like you do it 16 days or not, man, I mean, you're on your feet. This is labor intensive. This is hard work on the body. Oh, yeah. 
on the body. For sure. Listen, there's definitely a lot of Tylenol, a lot of pain reliever, shoulder, back, all of that. And, you know, age has nothing to do with it. Like, I've had assistants that are fairly younger. And, and it's, it's funny when you outlast somebody that's in their mid-20s. And it's just because they're not used to the grind. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's conditioning, right? It's like, you know, it's like anything. Like, you train, you know, you, you got to be in shape. You got to train. And Absolutely. you, you know, after 30 years, you, you know, you, you know how it goes. You're in shape. You can do it. Your muscles are trained. But the sustainability of that, I mean, like one of the things I've wondered, it's like for so many artists who are maybe known for doing big walls or whatever, it's like, how sustainable is that? Like, I guess, you know, and you, what's beautiful about your practice is that you're so diversified. I mean, yes, you might be, you know, we're talking about this big wall that you just did because it's fresh and new and it's beautiful. and We need to honor that. And you're proud mm-hmm. of it. And I want to uh, amplify it. But I mean, you're, this goes back to the toolbox conversation. I mean, you're diversified, right? So you're, you, you do have toys and you do do commercial work and illustration and murals and stuff. So, so, you know, so maybe you do one or two, three walls a year, whatever it is. I don't know. It's like, that's more sustainable. But I think about those artists who maybe are just like so known for big walls and it's like, man, what are you going to do when you're 50? What are you going to do when you're 60? You know, it's like, they're going to get more assistance. Yeah. <laughs> 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 they're going to be art directors. That's exactly walls. right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> they're going to get more assistance. Well said. Sage advice. <laughs> I'm saying. I know a, a couple of brothers that help Ron English out. You know, Ron's not up there fucking 24 hours painting. He knows better than that. You figure, you figure it out. You know, you figure it out. That's a beautiful thing. So, I mean, given your diversification, brother, I mean, given, you know, your amazing portfolio, I mean, how do you think about like we're coming into a new year, right? So and as we've also we kind of referenced a minute ago, I mean, you know, God bless you. You raised your family like you're kind of breaking into like being an empty nester now. Right. So like. Uh, right. Or are you an empty nester now? I mean, I, I but you've got a lot more time on your hands maybe now. Well, my youngest is 12 years old. And her big sister is 19. Yeah, her big sister is 19. Second year at Parsons. She's an amazing talent. And my son, Micah, he's just a, he's a grown-ass man already. Clearly, he gets it from his mother, you know. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you, though, about the, the new year, right? Because we've got the new year coming. I mean, with all of your sort of, you know, tools in the toolbox, and you think about 2023 coming up, like, like, how do you think about the year in totality? I mean, do you think, oh, okay, I'm what, like, ideally, I'd like to do one mural a quarter. I'm going to drop a new toy. I'm going to do that show. Like, I mean, I know some of it sort of sometimes comes out of nowhere. It's hard to be really intentional about, like, well, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. But just generally thinking, you know, speaking, like, how do you think about 2023 as a new year in terms of the kind of art you want to create? Well, one of the things that actually love about being in the east coast is the seasons change right which also means that it forces you to work indoors once the weather goes to shit and for me you know focusing on studio work and also working with collaborators you kind of plan it seasonally we're really excited to you know reconnect with my homeland mexico there's plans to expand and do more work in Mexico and reconnect with my culture, but also show in Latin America and, you know, put out more experiential projects. 
you know, look to do life-size sculptures versus toys, work on immersive experiences that deal with, you know, digital illustrations, projections, really transforming a space, you know, because the sky's the limit is, as long as you have the resources and the right connections and partner with the right people. Right on, man. I love immersive for you, man. I do. I'm so glad that made that made me smile. Like when I heard you say that, because like that, like your work, I could just I could see it in my mind, in my own mind, just feel it like what it would be because because it, you're, it's just it would be so rich and so ideal for that kind of medium, you know. So right, is, is there something? I mean, I know you're already like thinking about what you want to do and stuff. Is there <laughs> something right now, like for real, that you're chewing on? Or you're just planting the seeds and you're just like making it starting to make it happen. No, there's always stuff that I'm chewing on. Um, there's always stuff in the works. Some of the projects that I'm working on, unfortunately, I can't speak on yet. Just because it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah no, no danger, but you'll see it when it happens and you'll go, okay. He actually dropped a hint on that interview. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it first. I'm not real art people. Yeah, you you uh, heard it first. <laughs> Let's go back to the mini gods. You know, these designer toys that were created in the early 2000s. And uh, it was important to create something like that, that represented the culture I was from, but was really unique to the designer tour world at the time. Um, Other than Jesse Hernandez and myself, we were the only two Mexican Latino artists that, that were doing designer vinyl, at least on that scale. And now, you know, Jesse's killing it. He's continued to do things as Urban Aztec. And I've been focusing a lot more on the fine art and also murals and, you know, designing with brands, product. But, you know, I'd love to get back into, you know, toys, but on a much larger scale and also on a more immersive scale as well. Oh, man, the idea. Okay, so I'm starting to read between the lines here because I'm starting to feel like the mini gods is a very interesting uh, premise for an immersive uh, (laughs) multimedia art uh, installation. But it's just I'm probably totally wrong, but I love that idea anyway. Yeah, well, one of the things that I just finished was a collaboration with Afropunk. And we got to paint live and create these big, you know, mural installations that were part of a maze that, you know, some of the concert goers can go through and experiment, you know, different artists' work. And then, you know, also have this immersive experience through some digital art. But the cool thing about it is it's it was, you know, music going on, three different stages going on. So there was this this vibe and all I could think of was, you know, it'd be dope if there was a, you know, fifty foot mini god in the middle of this this concert. <laughs> yeah and then you know once you see it you gotta be it i mean you know you it, exactly. <laughs> there's no escaping the vision at that point you know i love it well you know so i mean you mentioned i'm gonna jump around a little bit but i mean mm-hmm. so so that obviously we want to go big we got scale we want to do some immersive stuff but like are you do you, do you foresee doing a, a small you know vinyl toy again drop a one anytime in the near near future i wouldn't say in the near future and only say that because yeah what how yeah what the fuck is near future (laughs) right right exactly i only say that because in in the past i was able to work directly with manufacturers not many people can say they were in asia actually seeing their toys being assembled and being put together 
and you know working with the with the developers firsthand and i was blessed enough to actually be able to experience that the game's changed a lot since then and now it's more about finding the right partnership that would want to produce something like that a lot of artists have taken the road of you know 3d printing and doing you know small runs and resin and trying other ways to get their work out there yeah and god bless them and that's great right but i mean they're at the end of the day like diy is diy and you know and that mm-hmm. just means you know making it's one thing selling it's another marketing promotion all that stuff and it's a challenge it's exciting but it's hard work you know and working with a manufacturer that's gonna just let you do you and you can, you know, you can oversee it, make sure it, it truly represents your vision. But then they get to handle all of the marketing and sales and distribution. You just collect the check. Like, that's kind of sweet. Like, you know, what I mean? it's kind of like, uh, you know, if you had to choose, maybe you, you, you'd want to go that way. You know? Yeah, it's good to have partners, uh, especially if their strength is in getting the product out there and getting it to the right, you know, retailers you know, versus you trying to just hustle it out of your garage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it is so interesting to think about what you were just saying about the seasonality of your practice, because, you know, you're right. I'm talking to you from uh, La La Land out here in uh, in Hollywood, and and you're over there in, on the East Coast holding it down. You're looking at the fall and the winter coming, and you're right. It's like, you know, it's like, yeah, you're not, you're not painting outside in the winter. I mean, chances are, right? So it's like, how does the seasonality of it all, like, shape your art? And, you know, I've wondered that, thought about that a lot, too. Like, how environment shapes art. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, you there's a reason why you go to a place like Laguna Beach and every gallery is filled with, like, landscapes, <laughs> you know, yeah. or whatever, yeah, right? Sure. And then to think about how the winter brings you into your studio to – focus on you know painting or design or whatever because you've lived both places right i mean you've lived you know Mm -hmm. in 365 sun and you've lived you know in the weather do you have a preference or do you care yeah i I have a lot of love for both coasts but you know for me i miss the seasons when i was living in la i remember it was christmas and it was fucking 80 degrees clear blue skies i was like this shit this shit doesn't feel right Right, right. No, it's true, man. I mean, you know, you know me. I mean, I was I'm a Midwest boy. I grew up outside Chicago, mm-hmm. but but yeah, I had the four seasons. I mean, you know, it's like it's like I I love the seasons. Yeah, I don't mind weather, it doesn't scare me. Yeah, no, me neither, man. And but I love the idea of being bicoastal. If if you're able to enjoy the best of both worlds, then then that's the way to do it. That's it, man. I think it's good to be comfortable. Like I like to say, I I want to be comfortable in my own skin no matter where I'm at. You know, and, mm-hmm. and if that's, you know, 72 and sunny, great. But, you know, I, I want to be comfortable, you know, 20 below too. <laughs> you know, it's like. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. right. Move around, move around. Well, I tell you what, brother, I'm just, I'm so grateful that we're just sitting here chopping it up, man. I mean, you know, it's been far, far, far too long. I mean, what's been heavy on your heart? Like as an artist, you're such a, I mean, you know, I mean, it's no surprise to say, you know, clearly, you know, you're a, an empathetic dude that thinks deeply about so many things. I mean, what's been on your mind and heart lately, like that you want to talk about, like like something that's just been stirring you? I mean, where can you start, right? There's there's so much going on, and truthfully, I think that there's so much negativity and bad energy in the world. I think what disappoints me is that 
that's all the good stories and all the beautiful things that our people are doing that are not being talked about. You know, we focus on black and brown culture when it's something, you know, negative or something terrible happened. But we don't we don't celebrate it enough. And, you know, unfortunately, bad news is what makes the news. You know, I've met a lot of really good people, a lot of amazing artists, a lot of incredible activists doing amazing work. And I'd love to focus on that more and focus on all the positivity. Yeah, because we can talk about bad shit all day. And, you know, I'm so grateful to hear you say that because, you know, I was having a conversation the other day with somebody and it's like, it feels like it's so... I don't want to say trendy now, you know, but it's like every, you know, well, A, the gloom and doom media, the sort of apocalyptic narrative that you hear, right, around people talking about, you know, the sky's falling and, you know, the end of the world or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was saying the other day, it's like, if you know a little bit of history, I think you might make an argument that, you know what, the world's always been fucked up. It's called the human condition. And you know mm-hmm. what? It's like you just need to understand that no, actually, on a lot of metrics, we're better off than we've been in a long time on many ways. Do we have real problems? Absolutely. Do we have to like deal with some real fucking shit? Absolutely. But don't tell me that this is like the worst of times. You know, maybe if you're a straight white male, <laughs> you know, yeah. but you know, your reign is over. But you know what? At the end of the day, I don't care. Like, I feel like on so many metrics that we're better off now. And so, like, let's focus on the positivity of it all because there is so much to be grateful for and happy about. And, you know, because news is 24-7 now and we're reporting, you know, from all over the world, I mean, maybe we know more about what's going on over here, over there. And, And to your point, the algorithms respond to the gloom and doom and the negativity. And so that's what they pump out. But if you don't unplug and zoom out and and take a bigger view, you could get sucked into that belief that maybe, you know, that shit's all negative. But man, you look Mm -hmm. local, you look local, you look in your backyard, you look at your family, you look at your friends, you look at what's going on. It's like, no, actually, there's so much positivity. So I don't know. It's it's just interesting because I feel like people are getting sucked into this narrative and, you know, on a certain level, it could become like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, it's like you start believing that shit, you start acting that way. And then, you know, maybe, maybe more negative shit happens, but, um, but I'm Mm -hmm. with you, brother. I think we got to shine a light on the positivity. No, absolutely. I mean, we control our own narrative, right? There's an artist from Boston that I'm a huge fan of. His name is Paul Goodnight. I suggest anybody listening to this, look up Paul Goodnight, but, um, shout out Paul. But he told me this quote, he said, he who controls the image controls the mind. And for me, you know, when you have social media and news outlets and all these people that are controlling the narrative and really trying to feed your information, that's going to affect you mentally, physically, spiritually, because that's all they constantly pump out. Then, you know, you're going to process all that. And then that's the energy you're going to give. You know, you're going to give that because that's what you're getting all day long. Imagine if media, you know, really pushed narratives that were uplifting, that were inspiring, that showed, you know, our people thriving, it would make somebody in a bad situation see themselves completely different and say, shit, if that person can make it from nothing, so can I. 
Sure, man. Yeah. And, you know, listen, I mean, yeah, I think part of it, too, is that, I don't know, let's go there. I mean, on a certain level, hmm. you know, because the demographics in this country is shifting, right? And as it should, right? Because it was all, you know, the aspiration was always like, oh, melting pot, diversity, you know, all that shit. But the truth was, you know, the power structure was driven and enforced by the straight white male, right? And now you have demographic shifting and you can't change that. There's nothing changing the demographics. Like it's change is constant. And that's why there's a beautiful thing. Right. But that's what's happening. Right. The power structure sees that they're absolutely that things are changing and they're reacting. Right. They're doing what they can to suppress the vote. and They're doing what they can to, you know, hold certain things, you know, in place. And, you know, but at the end of the day, I think for me, you know, the long arc of history, like. Call me naive, call me romantic. Maybe this is my privilege talking, but I do feel like the long arc of history points to justice, you know? And it's like, maybe our generation, maybe, you know, some real heavy, dark shit is going on right now. But like, I do believe, you know, I feel like I got to err on the side of positive, being positive, right? Like, so I don't know, man. I mean, you know, I just, you know, I got two kids under two. You got kids, you know, it's like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I want to paint, I want them to to have a, realistic view of the challenges of life. Life is challenging. Growing up is hard. Life is hard. It's a struggle. I'm not saying it's easy, but you know, I don't want them to be looking over their shoulder every minute either because everybody's being demonized or, you know, they're threatened by the fucking shadow, you know, or, mm-hmm. the, you know, it's like, cause I feel like that's where it's interesting. Cause in a lot of the circles or the, you know, I hear people talk, you know, around LA or whatever. And it's like, you think the murder capital or the murder rate is up. I'm like, no guys, the murder rate is down. You know, it's like, as you talk about parents, like they don't want their kids to ride their bike without a helmet. They don't want them to go. They don't want them to go far, you know, around the block, you know? And it's like, are we trying to raise tough, resilient kids? Or are you trying to raise kids afraid of their own shadow? You know? And I don't know. I'm on a rant now. (laughs) No, I think you want to raise smart, empathetic kids that are good human beings, but also aware, you know, that there are some bad people in this world, but also keeping in mind that not everybody is bad. So yeah, it's a balance, man. It's a balance indeed. Indeed. Well, and you know, and, and I just, you know, the importance of unplugging, you know, I remember reading an interview with that designer, uh, Philip Stark, the French guy. And, you know, he's one of these, uh, one of these industrial designers, right. That always gets hired to design, you know, all kinds of shit. He'll design a hotel, then he'll design a super yacht and he'll design this and he'll design that, you know, watches or clothes or whatever. And I remember reading a long time ago, because apparently I guess he famously does not have a phone, does not have a TV, does not. I mean, he's just so like unplugged, you know, he's off the grid and he's like, man, it's, I have to do that for my art because as soon as I plug in you know i have all these influences and i want to keep it pure because the second he thinks he came up with some new shit and then he starts seeing what's out there he's like oh fuck somebody did that 40 years ago somebody <laughs> did that 100 years ago right right yeah, dude. well well okay so fuck that guy my point is this my point is this that i think it is healthy right to unplug right like at least you know for oh, every once in a while for you know to zoom out right because i think that we're so just like like zoned in on this little device now and we're missing the world around us you know absolutely i agree a thousand percent i believe in the real human connectivity i try to you know 
influence my kids to hang out with their friends in real life. <laughs> try to come up with it. Yeah. Try to try to come up with excuses for them to be out there because it, you know, I, there has to be a healthy balance. It's okay to use it as a tool. I just, I can't imagine living in a, in a world where you use that to communicate a hundred percent of the time. Well, so we've referenced this phrase IRL, right? Which is like, you know, how the cool kids these days talk about, you know, real life. But, you know, we're like old dudes now. I got you beat. I'm 52, but still, you know, and uh, we ain't young and sexy anymore. And if we ever were, we were young. Yeah. Maybe we weren't sexy. Yeah. But Sexy is still, <laughs> still a frame of mind, bro. <laughs> oh, okay, you're still sexy. I, 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 clearly, I got some work to do. But the IRL thing sort of references this digital like life that we're living in, you know, and the kids especially. And it's like, you know, so I got to ask the question, you know, what do you think about these crazy little things now we're talking about, like the metaverse and NFTs and, you know, and, and you know, as an artist, right? I mean, it's like the last couple of years, it's like it's been like everywhere you turn. It's like, you know, artists are talking about, you know, NFTs and metaverse. And I mean, I've got my own opinions about it all. But I mean, where do you stand on the whole uh, digital revolution that's happening? I mean, as an artist, it's, it's to each their own, you know, if you want to be a purist and, and everything you do needs to be hung on a wall, that's cool. But for a generation that comes from knowing what it was like to grow up without the internet, knowing what it was like without smartphones, but then also being young enough to see all of those changes and the evolution of technology and being immersed in it at the same time, it puts you in a different category where you have a deep respect for both, where you appreciate the analog and the digital, and you try to combine both worlds. Uh, a lot of the artists that I know that are progressive, they're reaching out to different audiences in every which way that they can. Well, yeah, exactly. It's sort of again, kind of gets back to that thing about tools in the toolbox and like trying to figure out, you know, how you tell your story, you know, in a given medium or with a different tool or whatever. I mean, one of the things that struck me, you know, uh, struck me about all this is that, you know, it shined a light, the hype, right, around it all, right? It's kind of shined a light on just like how hungry artists are, right, at the end of the mm -hmm. day, right? Because it's like, oh, you know, this is the silver bullet. You know what I mean? This is going to get us paid. This is going to, you know, we're going to get royalties on our shit finally. And da, 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 da. You know, and by the way, like blockchain technology is awesome. You know what I mean? It's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. You know, it's, it, you know, and, and to the extent that it, it can create new revenue streams for artists. That's, I mean, I fully support that. But it was just interesting because, you know, it was so hyped. And, you know, to see the level of enthusiasm and energy around it was fascinating to me because it, it just spoke to the hunger, you know, that, that artists have. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, during NFT week in New York, Street Theory curated a street art edition for Voice. So Voice is a platform, does NFTs, and they were one of the few, actually the only platform at the time that accepted forms of currency that didn't have to be, you know, digital, digital or Bitcoin or any kind of currency like that. And at that time they were doing it because they were being conscious about the 
the environment effects that this whole thing has, you know. So being a part of that and doing that release with Street Theory, you know, we had an amazing lineup. You know, we had Indy 184, we had Don Rymix, we had Kano, we had Upendo Taylor. We had, we had a lot of dope artists. And, you know, I was one of the top selling artists. And when I met some of the people that collecting NFTs, they told me, well, I ran out of wall space. So now I have this big digital frame and I've got, you know, 50, 60 artists on this one frame that rotates. And they just love that aspect of it, of owning this artwork, looking at it whenever they want and not having to think about where they're going to keep the piece, how they're going to store it. So, you know, it's, it was cool seeing that you had real collectors that have physical artwork just evolving and collecting work in another form. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, my issue with it, not that I have an issue with it, I don't, but it's just like, it just comes down to security. You know what I mean? Like making sure mm-hmm. that your art, you know, collection is safe, you know, uh-huh. making sure, you know, if you have a crypto wallet, it's like, oh yeah, it is safe. And you know, they're going to figure it out. I mean, it's, it's wild, wild west right now. And by the way, it is getting safer and better, you know, but then the, you know, what I do, you know, what I, the other thing about it too, is that, you know, it's like with anything, right? It's like, you know, I may or may not have the expertise, you know, as an artist to launch an NFT. It feels very technical. You know, it's like, what mm-hmm. are the tools? What are the platforms that allow me to translate my work in this space and launch it and sell it and market it, you know, in a way that feels, you know, that I can actually successfully do it, you know, without necessarily yeah, having a bunch of help, you know? Of course, I think making sure first that you're partnering with a platform, that's very intuitive, easy to use for artists and, you know, has a great network and able to market and really help partner with you. Yeah. What platforms do you, I mean, if you, you know, launch an NFT tomorrow, who would you go with? You know what? I don't want to uh, okay. endorse anybody. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's how you know, that's how listeners, you know, people listening now, that's how you know you're talking to a real player. Somebody, somebody who actually has so much shit going on, they can't really mention names, you know, because they don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to upset the deals, the multiple yeah. deals. The current, the, the current deals. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, man. That's great. No, that's cool. But you know, I mean, it is, it is right. It, it, it's all happening, man. You know, it's all happening. And, um, you know, and, and anything that's going to open it up for artists to put more food on their plate, money in their pocket, I'm down for, it. I just want to, you know, I just want it to be done in a, in a safe way. So no one gets jacked, you know, and, and, and it's, you know, it's all going to happen. It just takes time, you know, definitely. You know, I saw your boy uh, Kano the other day, by the way. Yeah, what's that guy up to? <laughs> I mean, you know, Kano's Kano. He actually was generous enough. We did a thing. We're produ- Maybe you saw it somewhere, but we were producing these new things called Smart Talks in uh, Culver City over at the Helms uh, Bakery District. And so Smart Talks are like these, like, it's almost like a little symposium where we have like two or three panels, like, you know, of experts that talk about like hot topics, you know, that artists, you know, want to hear about. And so we did a panel on how to successfully launch an art toy. And so your boy Kano and Ben Goretzky came and chopped it up with me on the panel. And, you know, we talked about the business of uh, designing and and, uh, dropping art toys. But uh, Kano brought it, man. You know, know, what I love about Kano and Jesse, they're able to collaborate with different licenses and different brands. 
but still have their aesthetic and their DNA all over it. So, you know, when Kano does Bruce Lee or he does Bumblebee, it's Kano, you know, it's dope. You see his hand, you know what, you know, it's a Kano. And by the way, the same thing is true with you. I mean, you know, it's like, it's like your aesthetic, like your DNA is in everything you do. And I think, well, A, I guess that comes with 30 years, right? 10,000 plus mm-hmm. hours, or in your case, probably 30,000 hours, but you get my point. It's like, and, and but with an intention, right? Like, because it just, you know, it's not going to happen without that kind of intentionality. What would you say, brother? What you know, this might, might sound like a silly question, but, you know, if as an artist, you feel like you have a, like you just talked about Kano and you were saying what I love about Kano. So like, let's call that his superpower, his superpower like he's been he's able to when he you know touches things like like his voice is there right his dna is there what would you say as an artist your superpower is i would say bridging the two worlds that i come from when you're born in mexico when you're raised by immigrant parents but you grow up in the u.s there's a saying for that it's called which means neither from here nor there so when you're in this country you know, a lot of messed up people will never treat you like you're from here. And then when you go back to Mexico, you've been in the U.S. for so long that you're you're treated like a stranger a lot of the time. So for me, I, I would say my superpower is instead of letting that shit get me down, I use it as a strength. I use it as a leverage to authentically bring my roots and my culture, but also, you know, all the different influences that, you know, were a part of me growing up, you know, from hip hop to graffiti, you know, to, you know, Saturday morning cartoons and pop culture, all that stuff, things that, that you wouldn't experience growing up in Mexico. But then, you know, also having immigrant parents and growing up watching Chesperito and, you know, being exposed to the history of your country, like all those things have always resonated with me. That's your DNA, right? That's neo-indigenous. Yeah. I haven't had a chance to see the Cheech uh, Marin Museum in the Riverside, but I'm looking forward to that because I know there's a lot of Chicano artists that, you know, grew up in California or Arizona or, or wherever they're from, but still stay true to their culture. So I'd love to see that sometime. Yeah, I haven't been out there yet either. Man was there for a thing a few weeks ago because, I mean, it just opened, right? Like three or four months yeah. ago. Um, and well, I mean, shout out Cheech. I mean, you know, what an incredible accomplishment, labor, love, and so overdue, so, so necessary. So overdue. There needs to be one in, in every major city. Right. Well, okay. So let me talk. Let, okay. So let's go down this, drill down on this a little bit, because I think Cheech famously said in an interview one day, something about like, this isn't Chicano art. This is American art. Right now, I'm mm-hmm. paraphrasing, right? So, so I won't get that. Maybe I didn't get that exactly right. But the point was like, let's not look at this as other, right? Like, let's look at this as American art, right? And, you know, and I was talking about Smart Talks a minute ago, you know, like one of the things that we talked about, we had this panel, you know, right before, well, actually, right after Kano's panel, the panel was called The Beautiful and Long Overdue Rise of BIPOC artists and is it lasting change or, or cynical opportunism question mark. Right. And so Mm -hmm. the panel consisted of uh, April Banks, the artist, 
this woman, Sarah from Unwrapped, who is a art dealer specializing in, in BIPOC artists, specifically African-American artists. And then we had uh, Badir McCleary from Art Above Reality, who you might know as well. But, you know, and we were talking about that. And, you know, just this idea, again, of, of that phrase of BIPOC artists, that way of like carving out and saying other, you know. And so like, what is the language, right, that that I should be using, that we should be using? And when we talk about Chicano artists and we t- talk about the art you do, because, I mean, I don't think of it as Chicano art, for example, right? Like, yes, I know you're a Chicano artist, but, like, I think of it as art, number one, right? And beautiful, gorgeous art at that. And obviously, I see your heritage. I see your, you know, your your DNA in there, so to speak. But help me think this through a little bit and understand better, like, the language and how to reference this because it is American art, you know, but it's also Chicano art, you know? So, you know, are we overthinking these issues? Are we underthinking these issues? Like help me out here. You know, I did a piece in Boulder, Colorado, and the painting was titled 1946. And I'm trying to remember my history here, but it was because of a, a war that Mexico lost with the U.S. in 1948. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was written and land was taken. So when you think about Colorado, Texas, California, Arizona, New Mexico, all these parts that were Mexico. So to your point, as far as being indigenous and as far as being native, you know, like Cheech said, it's American art because we are indigenous Americans. We're part of the Americas. We didn't come here on any boats. So, you know, I get where people are coming from and why certain people get sensitive about being called Hispanic or being called Latino or Latinx or, or any of those things. I personally don't get hung up on titles, you know, at the end of the day where I'm an artist, you know, I'm a father my husband, you know, like the names and the titles don't define who I am. But just knowing your history and knowing your culture, that's more important than a title. You know, and the way you carry yourself, the work that you represent, and the work that represents your people, that speaks volumes a lot more than what people say about you. We have to control our narrative. And until we change the way we see ourselves, people are going to keep seeing us in the same way. You know, we, in circles of black and brown artists, we constantly talk about tired of being the victimized narrative. That our history started with colonialism. Our history started with slavery. Our history started with us being weak and us being brought here and, you know, taken from, you know, our savage ways. You know, we have to go beyond public education. And it's not until you're older that you start, you know, looking up your own history and realizing that, you know, you come from a dynasty, your ancestors come from greatness. So you look at yourself differently. But, you know, the point is, is to get everybody else to understand that, because not everybody's taught the same way we are, which is, you know, a reason why people are trying so hard to not have critical race theory, because they're terrified what it's going to do to kids and younger generations to realize how messed up history has been to everybody else. Yeah. You know, I really, what you were saying about labels really, you know, resonates because, you know, there's that old saying about, you know, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. 
and you know you can deliver tough messages right you can deliver you can say tough things you know but if you say it in a certain way people will hear it maybe in a way that if you come at it in the wrong way and i feel like you know the emphasis on labels you know i think sometimes it's self defeating you know i mean because there are mm-hmm. well, what i mean is like there are people that are all about the labels right like you know, i am this i am this you call me that you don't call me this and by the way again to your point to each their own but a militant attitude i wonder sometimes if the militant attitude around this rigorous application of these labels which by the way a lot of people maybe don't know about or unfamiliar with or whatever and then all of a sudden maybe you say the wrong thing and you get slapped down by somebody or whatever and it prevents maybe a a, lear- a teaching moment or a conversation or an opportunity to grow and learn and you know and and communicate because i you know i wonder sometimes like does the emphasis on labels help or hurt the conversation you know and i fear sometimes that it hurts but i'm a straight white dude so what do I, you know i mean i got to be careful you know with this you know cuz again to each their own and you know i think that anybody has a right to be called anything they want to be called you know that's great yeah. you know what's funny scott i'm so glad you brought that shit up because i've met so many black and brown artists that used to get pissed when you would call them a mexican artist or a black artist they would fucking say I'm an artist. Don't call me that. I'm just an artist. But when the poverty pimps come around handing out bags of money real quick, they're like, I'm Latino. I'm Latinx. I'm whatever the hell you need me to be. Just give me the bag. And to me, that's fake as fuck. You know, for me, I've always considered myself a Mexican artist. I don't think I'm pigeonholing myself. I take pride in the culture that I'm a part of. I take pride in the art sisters that I'm a part of. And if somebody's going to tell that story, it, it needs to be me. You know, and I don't see anything wrong with that personally, you know. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, it's kind of a catch 22 in some ways, right? Because, I mean, you absolutely need, and I'm just talking very broadly, right? Like, we absolutely need like handles to hold on to things, right? So, on a certain level, it's like, you know, we want to get to the point, right? Where it's just like, oh, yeah, we're all human beings and we just respect each other as human beings. But then, Absolutely. you know, but then like, okay, well, that human being happens to have more uh, melatonin in their skin and that human being has less or whatever. So then, you know, so they start to differentiate. One's a blonde, one's a brunette, one's, you know, a person of color, one isn't, you know, so you start to find, you know, labels or use words that become labels as a way of sort of handling and organizing, you know, and it feels like. It's sort of like it's about intentionality, right? On a certain level, it's like it's like, well, what's the intention of the label, right? So, is the label is it to help communicate and help promote um, understanding and empathy, or is the label meant to suppress or oppress or subjugate or whatever, right? And so, it's a catch twenty two because it feels like you know a gun can be a good thing, right, in the hands of a person hunting for food, and a gun could be a dangerous thing in the hands of the wrong person you know, looking to, to rob and steal. And so it's like, it's a fascinating paradox. It seems right. sometimes some of these labels, you know, I, I think what's most important is how each artist chooses to control their own narrative. Right. Because just because you're black, you're not going to do what people consider black art just because you're Latino doesn't mean you're going to do stereotypical Latino folk art. Right. And that not there's a pl- there's a place for that as well. You know, there's people that that love painting things that, you know, would look great in a postcard 
you know, or look good at an airport in, you know, Latin America. But, you know, for artists that come from a different background, that want to stay true to the culture, but want to have their own point of view and their own identity, that's a whole different conversation. You know, I always tell people, man, like, it's cool that you're a black artist. You do you, you know, paint what you want to paint. You know, if you want to paint abstract, if you want to paint cartoons, if you want to do realism, if you want to, you know, paint about, you know, civil rights movement, paint what's true to you. You know, don't let anybody dictate who you are just based on the color of your skin. Well, that reminds me of what, you know, what they tell writers, you know, I've over the years of, you know, taken certain writing classes or whatever. And they always say in writing, it's like, write what you know, you mm-hmm. know, like, what should I write about? Well, write what you know. And it's kind of like yeah. what you're saying, you know, you do you, you paint what you know, your unique, your human experience is unique to you. So use that right as your of superpower. Course. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting, man. I have a question for you, Scott. What do you think about artists that paint other people's cultures and make a living off of it? So let's just say, for example, you're a European artist, maybe from London, maybe from Ireland. You fetishize Asian women, and geishas, you know, women dressed in Asian attire. And that's your bag. That's what you do maybe 95% of the time. And you're making a lucrative living doing that. I'm just curious. What's your point of view on artists like that? Well, when you first, you on the spot, brother. yeah, no, no, <laughs> I, you know, it, it's a hot potato. I'll take it. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to say is going to be positive or whatever, but I'll say it this way. Like where, when you first said the question, you started the question, I thought maybe you were going to go this way with it. And then you ended up going this way. So I'm, I guess I'm going to answer the question a couple different ways, maybe. So it's like, just on a base level, if you have a white European artist painting, you know, other cultures, just as a question, right? It's like it, my, where my brain went with that was just like, well, I went back to intentionality, right? Because I could see that if the intention was to record, right? So it's like, it's like, I'm thinking like, you know, pre-photography, right? Like at the end of the day, like you're painting that maybe that was the only way to capture an image, right? Because it's like, oh, I've, I've traveled over here, I'm over here. And, you know, my job is to record what we're seeing. So mm-hmm. a lot of times, like a lot of the expeditions, of course, that led to colonization and what have you, like many of them had artists on them because they had to paint the landscape because they didn't have cameras, right? Or maybe they were or, drawing. Or fabricate the savages that were killing millions of people so they can get money from Spain. Fabricate the savages. There's like old drawings of Mayan temples with like, you know, rivers of blood flowing down. So you needed to convince the rest of the world that these people were uncivilized. Right. So that's like revisionist history and all of mm-hmm. that, right? But like, so on a certain level, like, so if the intent is evil, it's wrong. I guess that's what I'm getting at. So if like the intent is, you know, if it's educational and historical or trying to record something, you know, for posterity or whatever, okay, maybe I can see that, you know, but then you sort of went, you know, to this point, like, well, if there's an artist that's just like into Asian women and they're just painting, you know, Asian women all the time, you know, cause that's what's getting them off. You know, well, that borders on obsession, right? That borders on objectification, that borders on sexualization, you know, ex- exploitation, right? So, like, I'm mm-hmm. not down with exploitation, period, right. right? Right. 
so yeah, so for me, I guess it is about the intent of one's heart, the intent of the purpose of why they're doing it. I think it's, you know, tempting to paint with a broad brush. Oh, it's wrong all the time or what, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know that it's wrong all the time. I think that there could be situations that maybe it is appropriate for a white person to paint an image of a non-white, but it has to be understood like why they're doing that, what's happening, what's the intention, because certainly we know that there's lots of, you know, a lot of evil shit going on out there and we got to, we got to watch for that, you know? All right, that's a good answer. <laughs> what was, was there a right answer? <laughs> please, please, please. There's, uh, there's only your, there's only your answer, man. There's only your answer, you know? Well, how how would you answer the question, Mark at twenty seven? I really feel that you should paint with passion and purpose. You know, and if your purpose isn't coming from a place of authenticity, and you're a culture vulture, and I think people that are actually of that culture. And that what you're trying to represent is dear to their heart. They're going to see it for what it is. And maybe a lot of consumers will love it and buy into it. But the people that are really about it, they'll never buy into it. Right. Let me be clear about something. And certainly when it comes to art and artistry and artists, like I'm not down with opportunism. I'm not down with seizing a trend or trying to keep to ride the short tail of a trend or, or trying to be a biter on something that I know is selling over here. I'm going to try it over. No, I'm down with authenticity. I'm down with integrity. I'm down with unique perspectives and, and fresh air, you know, and that's it, you know? And so, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there that are trying to get a buck because, you know, they see an opportunity they don't have, they can't, they can't think for themselves, right. They can't come up with their own fresh air. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they're just, you know, they're just trying to, to make money because something seems trendy or hot or whatever. I'm not down with that. I understand it exists. And I, by the way, on a, you know, I don't on a certain level mind. I mean, I understand somebody's got to make a buck, but hopefully I would want most people to be able to earn a living with integrity and authenticity rather than just biting on some exploited bullshit, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And if, and if you're going to be passionate about a movement and, you know, call yourself an artivist, then, you know, stay true to it. Don't wait for the media to stop reporting on it continue that passion, continue the struggle, you know, because there's a lot of us that were doing this when it wasn't cool, when nobody cared, you know, uh, when I first came to LA in 2003, I remember a couple of artists were asking Man One and Vile, does Marco paint anything that's not political? Because at the time, that's that's all I was doing in LA, you know, we, we did murals that, you know, had Che Guevara on it. I did murals at Jesus Quieros and Orozco and Frida and Cesar Chavez and Zapata and all these revolutionary icons, you know. And when I first came to Boston, I already knew that it was a very racist city in certain parts of town. And what caught everybody's attention, I went to the South End when it was barely starting to go through gentrification. And I painted a mural called Strange Fruit. Strange Fruit is a song that was sung and written by Billie Holiday. And there was a portrait of her. And there was also realistic paintings of lynchings to show the contrast between beauty and pure evil. And to paint that back in 2000, we're talking over 20 years ago, in a city like Boston, I mean, that really woke everybody the fuck up. 
Yeah. I mean, because, you know, if unfortunately, right, m- most people in a city like Boston, you know, I don't know what the demographics look like, but I'm guessing it's predominantly white, <laughs> white town. You know, let's face it. I mean, everybody's, you know, so many people just got their head in the sand, you know, not wanting to think about the uncomfortable truth and the inconvenient truth of this country's history. And by the way, just the the history of so much history of this planet, you know, the one of mm-hmm. one of domination and, you know, it's greed or, well, I don't know. I mean, if it's like 2000 years ago or 10,000 years ago and you're trying to survive, I mean, it's about food and water and safety, you know, and if that guy's mm-hmm. got it, I'm going to go get it, you know? And so it's interesting to think about, I have this theory. I don't know. I mean, it's... <laughs> So just the theory that I'm probably way off on it. But, you know, what's crazy about the human species is that we've got out of the food chain. You know, I mean, somehow we manage as animals, if you believe we're animals, that we got out of the food chain. However, that predator prey fight flight kind of instinct, that primal instinct is still there. Right. But we got out of the food chain. So so what is, how does that manifest itself? I feel like there's an argument to be made that it manifested itself by us turning on each other, right? And so suddenly the other wasn't the saber-toothed tiger trying to get us. The other was you with the food and water or the woman, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was like, boom, I'm going to go get what that guy's got, you know? And so it was tribalism and it was, you know, man turning against man. And then it feels like eventually as power gets consolidated or ways of talking about it, you know, then it becomes like reductive and maybe it's like, oh, well, you know, they, the white people, the black people, the brown people. And, you know, so we got out of the food chain, but we didn't stop killing, you know, I wonder to what extent we will evolve to a point where we can truly love and respect each other and be empathetic and understanding toward each other and understand we have a share of common humanity. And we need each other. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's like, how the fuck is this so hard? You know? Yeah, it's just, it's great. You know, for some people, it really comes down to their disconnectedness to this planet. Because when you realize that everything that we have came from this earth and that we are all in the same playing field when it comes to, you know, we all, we all, we're all going to go the same way. And until you lose the ego and realize that you're not better than somebody else, you just were born under different circumstances. You know, we're just, we're just taught, unfortunately, we're programmed with a lot of bullshit. So I love kids so much. Because kids are, are pure. They're, you know, they see things for what it really is. And, you know, they don't judge. They might make fun of each other. But it's, you know, it's, it's not out of malice when they're young. And it's not until we're growing up and learn from society all these ways to differentiate from each other and disconnect from the nature that sustains us. If we were more connected to, to nature and less to, you know, technology and actually understanding what health means what it is to be connected to each other spiritually and physically in a way that is more genuine and you wouldn't have the level of 
black on black crimes, brown on brown crimes, it's sad because division conquers. And it's not until you start traveling the world and you see real third world problems that you're like, shit, man, we're over here fighting over bullshit. Yeah. You know? Well, you said something that reminded me of something I really believe in. It's like, I do believe so many of our problems, mankind's problems, generally speaking, are rooted in the disconnection we have from the natural world. Like as soon as we stopped hunting, having to hunt, as soon as we stopped really having to grow our own food, we became disconnected from the natural world, you know? And I think that that's, that started to breed so many or create so many quote unquote modern problems, like whether it's mental health issues or obesity or just um, greed, you know, I think that that connection to the natural world, our connection to the land, to the dirt, to the trees, to the air, to the water, you know, was fundamental, you know, is essential to kind of understanding compassion, empathy and respect and love and all that. And as soon as you start getting, you know, disconnected from that, you don't have to grow your own food. You don't have to hunt your own food. You start really becoming delusional, right, about your privilege or what life is about or whatever the case might be. I mean, it is amazing to me how you'll have foodies, you know, who love to talk about that great cuisine or that great dish they had from that great chef, but they don't want to see a cow get slaughtered or butchered. Or they don't want to see the laborers that are being exploited to grow those avocados, pick the strawberries, all the things that are being done, 104 degrees weather, no fucking weather, no water, no health. You know, I am just, you know, so angry about how our this country is so hypocritical and delusional about these issues because this bullshit about, you know, illegal immigrants are taking our jobs. Are you fucking kidding me? You don't, you couldn't pick strawberries for one day, mm-hmm. you know, in 105 degree heat, you know, let alone do it for years. So fuck you for saying that. Yeah. I've seen some really toxic behavior in New York. I've seen the NYPD go up to a street vendor and take all of her fruit, all of her vegetables and throw it in a garbage truck because she didn't have a license. Mind you, she's selling food and vegetables and organic goods in a food desert where you can't find any of that in certain parts of New York. So, unfortunately, it's this evil goes rampant. And, you know, they're focusing their energies on people that are trying to make an honest living versus trying to go after real criminals. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> we may, may regret asking this question. I won't ask it anyway, because I think about it a lot myself. Is it possible for it to be any other way than it is? I think worldwide, it can be. But, you know, it's unfortunately, it has to start with each individual. We all have to stop, you know, changing the way we see ourselves and stop changing the way we see the world and start projecting how we want to see the world how we want to see ourselves, you know, because just because things are fucked up doesn't mean they have to stay that way. So instead of saying, well, what are we going to do about it? You know, nothing I can do about it is what it is. You know, the smallest things will contribute. Small things add up. Market 27, that is a beautiful way to end this episode. (laughs) And I am so grateful, brother, that we were able to sit down and chop it up like this. And please, let's not wait five years (laughs) 
<laughs> before we do this again or however long. Let's do it live next time. Now you got to come to Brooklyn. We'll do it at my studio. Oh, man, I would love it. I would love it. In fact, actually, I would. I'd Bring love to kids. talk. Yeah, man, for sure. For sure. What I'd also but I would be great to do, actually, now that you're funny that you mentioned that. You know, the smart talks thing that I was talking to you about, like, I want to bring it on the road. Like, I want to like, so that, so maybe we could come to Boston. We like hook up a little venue and we go to Boston. They're going to call it with, they're going to call it wicked smart talk. (laughs) (laughs) Wherever you want to go is where we'll go. And, you know, and, and it'd be interesting to, to have a couple panels, get some artist discussions and, you know, and do something, you know, sort of nurturing, you know, and nutritious, you know. Oh. Absolutely, man. I'm down. All right, Scott. Well, yo, it was a pleasure being on the Real Art. Not Real Art has had some amazing artists on here. I'm glad to be a part of the lineup. Hey, man, you're classing up the joint, man. We just leveled up. We just leveled up a whole nother 10 levels, 27 levels, actually. Mark at 27 oh, levels. in the bar. Lays in the bar. Always. <laughs> Indeed, brother. Well, hey, love to the fam. I'll let you know when I'm coming that way. You, you let me know when you're coming out this way. I know life is, is crazy, but uh, I can't wait to see you and break bread and, and hang out hopefully sometime real soon. Yeah, man, definitely. We'll reconnect. I appreciate you. Appreciate you, brother. Be well. All right. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe. So you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.